You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, An Anchor for the Soul. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. If you would please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. What we like to do here at Whitefields is that we like to study through books of the Bible. So for the past several weeks, maybe months, we've been looking at the letter to the Hebrews. We took a break for Christmas over the past two weeks, but we're back in it today, back in Hebrews, this time in chapter 8. And Hebrews, this is really one of the greatest books in the entire Bible because what it does is it, it links together the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it shows us that it's all about Jesus. It shows us that all the things that have come before, they were all pointing to Jesus, and now we have him as the fulfillment. It also shows us how Jesus is the answer. He's the one that we need in order to find the hope and the joy and the courage to face the things that we face in our lives. So if you'd please read along with me. We're going to read our text today from Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. Verse 5, these things serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. In verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word we have today. We thank you for this new covenant that you have established in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that as we study today that we would understand what that new covenant is, how do we take hold of it, and Lord, please help us to see what Jesus has done. Lord, today we want to glory in Christ Jesus and see what he has done. Help us to understand the gospel and to understand how it applies to our lives and why it is such good news. Lord, we pray that you would do these things and do a work in our hearts and minds today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's New Year's Eve, as you know. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I really like this time of year. In fact, I think I like it maybe a little bit more than Christmas. I hope you don't throw anything at me for saying that. But I do, because at New Year's, we get to do something unique. We purposefully set aside some time, and we look back and we look forward. So we look back on the past year with thankfulness. We thank God for his grace, the things that he's carried us through and brought us through. But we also look forward to the coming year with hopefulness. And that's very important. It's very healthy. It's a very biblical thing for us to do, to look back and to give thanks to God for his grace in our lives over the past period of time, whether it's a year or whatever, and then to set our eyes on the future once we've given thanks and to ask God to show us and to lead us as we move forward. And so we, we reflect and then we pray and then we plan. 
And so part of looking back on the old year, the past year, is considering what things we need to leave behind, what things we need to let go of and move forward, which habits or practices we've had in the past which are hurting us rather than helping us, and what things we want to be doing instead. And a lot of times we do this in regard to health, right, losing weight, eating better, or we do it in regard to finances, or we do it in regard to how we manage our time. By the way, those are the three top things that New Year's resolutions are about, finances, time management, and weight loss. But it's important that as we do this, we also do this with spiritual things. We need to look back and assess, and we need to look forward to what lies ahead. And that's exactly what our text here today is all about. Hebrews chapter 8 is all about looking back to the past, understanding it and appreciating it. But what the writer tells us is, you can't stay there. You can't stay there. You need to turn your eyes, turn your face forward, and you need to move forward into what God has next for you. In fact, the people this letter was written to, they were in danger. They were in danger of making the biggest mistake of their lives because some of them were getting stuck in the past. They were clinging to their old ways, and that was actually holding them back from experiencing the great things that God wanted to do in their lives. And I think this is a very timely message for us here at the new year because as we read this, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is there anything that I'm clinging to which is holding me back from what God wants to do in my life. I encourage you to ask that question as we study today. The title of today's message is Out with the Old and In with the New. And the book of Hebrews, this is a letter. This is a letter which was written to a group of early Christians who were ethnically Jewish. And now these people had been raised in the Jewish community, but they had embraced Jesus as the Messiah, the one who God had foretold from way back when, through the prophets and down through the ages, that he would send a savior for the world. And they had said, Jesus, he, he ticks all the boxes, he meets all the criteria, and what he did, he is the savior. So they had embraced Jesus as their Messiah. But for many of these people, these Jewish Christians, that decision to follow Jesus had been met with a lot of pushback, a lot of pressure from other people in the Jewish community, whether those were family or friends or co-workers, uh, basically everybody who mattered to them in their lives. They were being pressured to quit Christianity and return to Judaism. Now, for many of these people, becoming Christians, following Jesus, had meant uh, alienation from their families. It had probably meant problems at work. It also meant losing some friends. And for some of them, it even meant physical, literal persecution. And as a result, some of these Jewish Christians were getting tired. They were getting worn out and discouraged. And they were being tempted to give up and give in to the pressure and go back to Judaism. And so this letter was written as an urgent appeal to these people for them to look to Jesus, to set their eyes on him and to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises down through the ages and through the Old Testament. And in other words, to really honor Abraham, to really honor Moses, to really honor the Jewish scriptures is not to reject Jesus, but to wholeheartedly embrace Jesus. And so for them, like for us, clinging to their old ways instead of embracing Jesus would have been the worst possible mistake they could make. That's true of us, too. It's true of you. To cling to your old ways rather than embracing Jesus and what God wants to do in your life is the worst mistake you could make. So here's what we're going to see in this section. Here's what we learn. Three things. First of all, he talks about the difference between the shadows and the substance. That's what we'll talk about first. The difference between the shadows and the substance. Then he talks about the radical new relationship that we can have with God. And then finally he talks about how to take hold of it. So that's what we'll be looking at today. So let's begin by talking about this. The difference between the shadows 
and the substance. The writer begins this section in verse 1 by saying this. Now here is the point of everything I have said up until now. What has he said up until now? Well, so far what he's been saying is he's been comparing Jesus. He started out comparing Jesus to angels, then comparing Jesus to other people, other great people throughout history, and saying Jesus is more than just a great person who lived at one time. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than anyone who has ever lived. And then he began comparing Jesus to the Levitical priesthood and the Old Testament rituals and the priests. And he, he started talking about this interesting character named Melchizedek, the only person in the Bible who is both a king and a priest and said that person was a foreshadowing of Jesus. But now here's what he says. He says, okay, I've given you a lot of information. Now let me land the plane for you. Let me bring this home. Let me make this practical. Here's what all that means for you. Here's the point of everything I've been saying up until now. Here's what it is. Everything that came before, it was all just shadows, but Jesus is the substance. Everything that came before, it was shadows, but Jesus is a substance. And here's what that means practically. It means this. Jesus did not come to establish a new religion, nor did Jesus come to establish and create the best religion. Jesus came to end religion and give us a radical new relationship with God. I'm going to say that again because I, I, I want you to I want to drill this one down, okay? Jesus did not come to establish the best religion, nor did he come to establish a new religion. Jesus came to end religion and to welcome us into a new relationship with God. So notice what it says in verse 5. He says, all these things, all what things? All the priests, the temples, the sacrifices, they served as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. In other words, all of those things were copies that pointed to the real thing, the true thing, but they weren't the real thing themselves. In the first four verses, here's what he says. He says, Jesus is the true priest who serves in the true tent, the tabernacle, that, that mobile temple that they had in the desert. So Jesus is the true priest who serves in the true tent, and he offers the true sacrifice. In verse 5 he says, and what that means is that all the earthly priests, the earthly temple, the earthly sacrifices, these were all just copies and shadows of Jesus. And they were given in order to prepare people for him and his coming and what he would do for real. So imagine like, for example, if you lived in Kansas. Now, don't imagine it too long because you'll get depressed. But let's imagine that you live in Kansas, okay? And you've never seen the ocean before. What you do, what do you do? You get out your smartphone and, and you pull up a video on YouTube and you watch the, the sunset over the Pacific Ocean. And you listen to the sound of the waves crashing and you see the colors pink and orange in the sky over the water. And you love this video and you begin to watch this video every single day. In fact, you might even say that you begin to watch it religiously, right? Like every single day. This becomes your ritual. You watch this video. Now imagine if you were then to travel to the coast with some friends. And in the evening, as the, as the sun starts to go down, your friends say to you, hey, let's go watch the sunset over the ocean. But you say, no thanks. I've got this video I like to watch every day, so I'm going to stay home, and I'm going to watch this video of the sunset on YouTube over the ocean. It's such a good video. Now, that would be ridiculous. Why would you trade the real thing for a copy? I mean, the copy is good until you actually have the real thing because it's not the real thing itself. And so why would you choose a copy over the real thing? And yet that is what so many people do when it comes to God. They choose the shadows over the substance. And we don't do it only in regard to religion. Religion is just one way that we do that, where we choose the shadows over the substance. I'll explain what I mean by that in just a minute. But what I mean is that we choose the things that point to God 
rather than God himself when he's available to us in Christ. Think about how shadows work, right? So a shadow is always created by something. There's a substance behind every shadow. A shadow always has a substance which creates it, but the shadow itself has no substance, right? Like you can't hug a shadow. So I have a daughter. She, is, uh, she just turned two about two weeks ago. And a few months ago, we were outside on our driveway, and the sun was shining, and our daughter, you know, she discovered her shadow. I think it might have been the first time that she discovered her shadow. She's just over one year old, and she's walking around, and she saw her shadow. She was so intrigued by it. It's so cute, right? And so, you know, the shadow moves whenever she moves. If she lifts her arm, the shadow also lifts her arm. But at one point, she tried to touch her shadow, right? It's like she reached down and tried to touch her shadow, see what it feels like. But of course, there's nothing to touch. There's nothing to feel because a shadow doesn't have any substance to it. So imagine, for example, if you came home from a long trip and as you're walking up the driveway, you know, you get dropped off from the airport and your family comes running out the front door to greet you. But instead of running up to you and, and embracing you and hugging you, they run over to your shadow and they kneel down and they start kissing your shadow and they start telling your shadow, oh, we've just missed you so much. That would be kind of weird. And yet that's the point that the writer's making here. That's exactly what people do in essence a lot of times with God. They get so focused and enamored on the things which point to him rather than the substance of who he actually is. One of the ways people do this is with religion, but, but that's not the only way. There are other ways that we do this as well. What the writer to the Hebrews wants us to understand is this. Jesus didn't come to establish a new religion. He didn't come to establish the best religion. Jesus came to end religion and give us a radical new relationship with God. So have you ever heard anybody say, all religions basically teach the same things? I mean, I, I hear this all the time, right? So people will tell you, all religions, they all basically teach the same thing. You know, they just come out of different traditions and whatever. Well, in a way, I'll tell you this. In a way, that is true. But if it is true, then Christianity should not be categorized in the same category as religion. So let me explain this. Here's what all religions basically do three things that all religions basically do. So all religions point to a greater reality than the reality which you and I are experiencing here. So they point to a greater reality than what we see and experience. Secondly, they point out the problem, that there's a problem. They say there's a problem, there is a gap between you and that reality. There's a reason why you're not experiencing that reality or why, you know, there's a gap or a separation between you and God. So they'll, they'll point out the problem. They'll say, for example, that you're imperfect or that you're unclean. And that is the reason why you can't experience that greater reality or why you can't connect with God. And then the third thing that every religion will do is they will tell you that it is up to you to bridge that gap. They'll say, okay, now here's what you need to do. They'll give you a list. Rituals, ceremonies, pilgrimages. If you pray these prayers and you keep this schedule and you do these things, then you can make yourself clean. Then you can atone for your sins. Then you can bridge that gap that exists between you and that greater reality or between you and God. And I want to tell you, this is where Christianity is absolutely different than every other religion in the world. This is what sets Christianity apart. Whereas every religion in the world says, okay, here's what you need to do in order to bridge the gap between you and God. Christianity comes along and says, no, first of all, that gap is way too big. It would be impossible for you to bridge that gap. But secondly, here's the good news. God loves you so much that he has intervened on your behalf and he has bridged that gap for you in Christ. 
You cannot save yourself, but God loves you so much that he has taken action on your behalf in order to save you. Now, that's very different. I hope you see that. Here's what sets Christianity apart. It's here in verse 1 of chapter 8. It says this, We have a high priest who is seated. I'll just stop right there. We have a high priest who is seated. That is what sets Christianity apart. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. If you read through the New Testament, you're going to find this phrase repeated over and over and over. It's found four times here in Hebrews, but it's found throughout all of the other New Testament books as well. Jesus did his work, and then he sat down. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, here's the thing. If you would have gone into the ancient temple where sacrifices were made, you would have seen a lot of interesting things. But you know what you wouldn't have seen? Chairs. They didn't have any chairs. And they didn't have any benches. They didn't have any, any stools. Nothing to sit on. That's because the temple was not a place to rest. Whether you were there visiting to worship or whether you were a priest, but especially if you were a priest. So there's no chairs in the temple, no benches, there's no boxes to sit on. Uh, there's nowhere to sit. And the, the reason for that was this. If you come to the temple, it's not to rest. It's to make sacrifice to atone for sin. But also, if you're a priest then your work is never finished. I don't know if you've ever had a job like this. I have, where you have one of these jobs where you can never sit down, right? Because if you're sitting down, that means that you're not working. You're not doing your job. Now, that's how it was with the priests. Their work was never finished. The sacrifices they made could never fully atone for sins, and so there was no end to the sacrifices that they needed to make. And so here's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. It's this. We have a high priest who is seated, who has sat down. And what that refers to is that he has finished his work and it's done and now he sits down and he rests. This point is made again over and over throughout the New Testament. Here's what it says in, in later on in this book in chapter 10, verse 12. It says, For when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. On the cross as Jesus was dying, he declared, It is finished. Everything that was needed in order to bridge that gap. He did it. It's done. And then he sat down. Every other religion says, here's what you need to do. Christianity says, here's what Jesus did. It's not a tradition. It's not a cultural thing. It is a historical event that happened at a certain place and a certain time in history. Those priests, they were a copy, they were a shadow of the true priest, Jesus, who would one day come. The sacrifices the priests offered, they were copies and shadows of the true sacrifice whom God would send one day, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who, who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The temple and the tabernacle where worship was offered and sacrifices were made, verse 5 tells us they were a copy of the true temple, which is in heaven. So I love to read the Old Testament for this reason because it's, for, it's full of foreshadowing of Jesus. All of these images and hints and previews and tastes of what is to come. And I love to read the Old Testament and search for and find all those Easter eggs which point to and foreshadow Jesus. But again, here's what this all means for us. When Jesus came, he didn't come to start a new religion. He didn't come to start the best religion. He came to end religion. And that's why he said, it is finished and he sat down. He is the priest who has completed his work and sat down. The role of all these religious practices that came before was to point people to Jesus and what he would do to prepare their hearts and minds for it. But now that he has come, there is no more need 
for cleansing rituals. There's no more need for priests to make sacrifices. Jesus has now done that thing which all of those things were foreshadowing and pointing to. To really illustrate this, you really should put yourself in the shoes of a Roman person living in the first century. So imagine a typical Roman person having a conversation with a Christian and how radical Christianity would have seemed. So the Roman person would have said, oh, a new religion. Well, I love religion, all the pageantry, so much comfort found in religion. So tell me about your religion. Well, where, first of all, where is your temple? And the Christian would have said, well, we don't actually have a temple. Christ himself is our temple. And they say, well, what do you mean you don't have a temple? I mean, if you don't have a temple, then, then where do your priests work and do their, their priestly stuff? Well, we don't actually have any priests because Christ is our priest. And they say, well, wait a second, if you don't have any priests, then how do you make sacrifices? How do you make oblations? How do you make offerings to your God so that he will accept you? And they say, well, we don't have to do that. Jesus is our sacrifice, and because of what he did, we're already accepted. And they, this Roman person would say, well, what kind of religion is this? This is like nothing, no religion I've ever heard of. And the Christian would say, exactly. Because God didn't give us a religion, he gave us a person. He gave us a person named Jesus. Jesus is the temple to end all temples. He's the final priest to end all priests. He's the final sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And he brings a covenant to end all covenants. You see, other religious figures throughout history, they came and they said, I am here to point you to the ultimate reality. I'm here to show you the way to the ultimate reality. But Jesus came and he said, I am the ultimate reality to which everything else has been pointing to and looking for. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life that everybody has been pointing the way to and looking for. It's me. I am the substance. And so he is, whether it's cleansing you need or forgiveness or righteousness, those things are found in him. He is the bridge over the gap. Everything else was just a shadow, but he is the substance. Now, think for a second about how shadows work. Think about a shadow. If you see, for example, if you go into a, a big city and you see a shadow of a tall building, well, if you follow that shadow all the way to its end, it will lead you to the thing which created the shadow. In other words, the substance behind the shadow, the thing which makes the shadow. And so what so many of us do is that we settle for the shadow rather than following the shadow all the way to the end so that it can lead us to the substance, to the source. And so many people do this with religion. That's what this letter was written about. But many of us do it in other ways. Let me give you an example. In the Gospel of John chapter 4, we read this story where Jesus had a conversation with a woman at a well. His disciples had gone off and Jesus had said, I'm going to hang out here. And he had a conversation with a woman who had came to draw water from a well. And during this conversation, it was revealed that this woman had been kind of bouncing around from one unhealthy relationship to another and she had been divorced five times and the man she was currently living with was not her husband and Jesus says to her he says you know what if you knew who you were talking to if you knew who I am then you would ask me and I would give you that thing which you are really looking for in all of these relationships that thing which you're really looking for that you're looking for and that's why you're going from relationship to relationship from man to man you're looking for something and if you only realized it you would ask me because I am the only one who can give you really what you're looking for now she was looking for something what was she looking for she was looking for maybe love acceptance security 
But none of these relationships had been able to fill that hole in her soul and meet that profound need that she felt to be truly known and truly loved and, and to be loved by someone who would never leave her and never forsake her. And so she had gone from one relationship to the next looking for something, hoping that this next relationship would fulfill her and do what the previous relationship couldn't do. And what Jesus is telling her is that thing that you are looking for, it can't be found in any relationship. There's no relationship out there that will fill what you're looking for it to fill. Because what you're looking for can only be found in a relationship with God. What you are thirsting for in your soul is what he called the living water the living water which comes from God alone. Now when Jesus told that woman, what you really need is the living water and I can give it to you, he was referring back to something which is actually from the Old Testament, referred to by the prophet Jeremiah, hundreds of years beforehand. Now Jeremiah had given this message from God many years prior to this to the people. He had said this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And here's what he's saying. This is what we tend to do as human beings. We tend to look to other things to give us what only God can give us. But those things are like broken cisterns. They don't hold any water. They'll never deliver. So like that woman at the well, some people seek those things in relationships. Other people do it in other ways. Maybe it's through success in their career or through fulfillment with their family. Or maybe it's through exceeding or excelling at their hobbies. Or They do these things. We do these things to try to fill this void in our soul but the point is that void can only be filled with God and God alone some people do it with with drugs and alcohol or maybe with licentiousness think about people who commit adultery and you you might think to yourself okay why do people do that and it's really easy and it's really simplistic for you to just look down your nose at somebody and say well he probably just does it because he's a dirty rotten sinner of course that's why he does it but I want you to hang on a second and dial it back. Or maybe zoom in. I'm not sure. Whatever you got to do, do this. Take a closer look. That person who's abusing substances, why are they doing that? What are they looking for? What are they trying to achieve out of that? Are they looking for an escape? Are they looking for relief from the pain and hardship of life in this world? That person who commits adultery, why? Why do they do that? Why do they cross that line and do something which they know will hurt them and their family? Is it just because they're a dirty, rotten sinner? Maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe, maybe if you look a little closer, you'd see that what they're, they're looking for something. They're looking for something that can only be found in and through Jesus Christ in a relationship with God, and yet they're going about it, they're looking for it in places and ways which will never fulfill them, which will actually destroy them. See, instead of turning to the source of living water, they're looking for that living water in broken cisterns that can't hold water, that will never deliver. All of those desires, the desire for love, acceptance, relief from hardship, all of those desires are shadows and their substance is in Jesus. And so many of us, our entire lives, we, we find ourselves chasing after the shadows rather than taking hold of the substance which is available to us in Jesus Christ. It is only in him that you find the fulfillment of everything which the shadows pointed to, both the shadows that we find in the Old Testament scriptures and the shadows in our own lives, the, our pursuits, the things that we pursue when at the end of those things is really God. He's the substance. He's what we really desire and what we really need. See, here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He didn't come to start the best religion. 
Jesus came to end religion and to give us a radical new relationship with God. So let's talk about that radical new relationship with God. In verses 8 through 12, the writer is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, where Jeremiah foretold how one day God was going to make a new covenant with his people, a new kind of relationship predicated on different promises and different terms. So a covenant, what is a covenant? A covenant, don't think of it so much in terms of a contract. That's, that's a little bit minimalistic to think of it in terms of a contract. A covenant is a binding relationship between two parties. The only thing that we have in our society this day, these days which compares to a covenant relationship is marriage. And actually throughout the Bible, marriage is used as a picture of what a covenant relationship is and the covenant relationship that God has with his people. Now, if you were here earlier this year, we studied through the book of Exodus. I loved that study. I hope you did too. But we read the story of how the people entered into this covenant that he's referring to here um, that he says is passing away. And it's an incredible story. I'll just give you a kind of summary of it. Here's what happened. God brought the people out of slavery, or people of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. And he brought them into freedom. He, he set them free. And he was good to them. They hadn't done anything to deserve it. They hadn't earned it, but he was just good to them. And he brought them out of slavery. And then in Exodus chapter 19, God made them an offer. He said, look, we've been, I, I, I've saved you guys. I brought you out of this slavery. And now I'm going to make you an offer. Here's the offer. If you want, we can enter into a relationship a binding relationship. I will be your God and you will be my people. It'll be like a marriage between us. And the stipulation on this special relationship was, okay, but if we're gonna get married, you gotta be faithful to me. And here's, here's what he said, you've got to abide by my law, by the terms of the covenant. You've gotta keep this law. And, and if you do, then I'll be like a spouse to you. I'll be faithful, I'll be loving, I'll be protecting and providing and caring and nurturing. And when God made this offer, the people immediately responded. Without hesitation, they said, yes, we want that. We'll do it. Anything you ask from us, we will do it all, all of it. And God was like, wait a second, I didn't even tell you what the terms are yet. And they said, oh, all right, okay, so what are the terms? So God says, okay, I'm going to tell you the terms. And then after you hear them, then you can decide if this is something you actually want to do or actually can do or not. And so from Exodus 20 to 23, he gives them the terms of the covenant, the, the relationship. He says, here's what I expect of you. And basically, here's what it was. It was moral perfection, moral perfection all the time with no exceptions. And so in chapter 24, after having read them the terms of the agreement, God says, okay, so, so do you guys think that this is something you can do? Do you, think that the, do you think you can hold up to this agreement? And the people were like, totally. We got this. Easy peasy. No problem. Slam dunk. We got this. And God's like, are you sure? Because I'm not sure. You should be sure. And they're like, no, we're sure. Absolutely. So God tells Moses, he says, okay, Moses, here's what I want you to do. It's kind of weird, but just follow me on this. He goes, I want you to kill some animals, slaughter the animals. And I want you to collect the blood of those animals into bowls. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to read the people the terms of the covenant again and ask them, are you sure you can do this? And if they say yes, then you're going to take that blood of those animals and you're going to throw it on them. Like you're just going to splatter these people, cover them with blood. It's kind of weird, but here's what it symbolizes. That in agreeing to the terms of this covenant, what they're saying is, if we break this covenant then may our blood be shed. If we break this covenant, then we deserve to die. And so that's what they did. He threw the blood on them, and he was like, are you guys sure you're sure you can do this? And they were like, we're sure. We got this easy. 
Now let me ask you this. How long do you think it took for them to break that covenant? Five minutes? Ten minutes? I don't know. I don't know, but it wasn't very long. And, I, and the reason we know it wasn't very long is because right after God finished giving them the law and they entered into this covenant, immediately in the next chapter, then he begins to tell them what to do once they've broken the law. He says, okay, well, um, you know, you made this promise you're never going to break the law, but here's what you're going to do when you break the law. Sacrifices. That's where the priesthood came in. That's where the tabernacle, the place for, for making sacrifices came in. In other words, here's the point. God knew going into it that they were never going to be able to keep this covenant. It was impossible. There was no way they could do it. Well, then you might ask, well, then why did God enter into this covenant with them if he knew that they weren't going to be able to keep up their end of the agreement? And here's why. Because God knows what we're like. He knows that we're just like them. They're just like us, right? He knows our human nature. That we tend to be pretty confident about ourselves, right? Like we have a pretty high opinion about ourselves. We think we're totally capable of saving ourselves, of bridging that gap that needs to be bridged. And God said, okay, I'm going to let you take a shot at it. I'm going to let you give it your best shot so that you can see for yourself how much you need me to save you and rescue you and carry you every step of the way. And so here what we have in Hebrews chapter 8, the writer's talking about the old covenant, the covenant which God made with his people back in Exodus 24, that covenant based on the law. And the writer's saying, look, you can't live in, you can't live in the past. You can't live in that old covenant anymore. And the reason why is this, verse 9, he says, because you broke that covenant. You broke it. There wasn't a problem with the covenant itself. It was a great covenant. God did his part. But the problem is this. You broke it. It's broken. It's null and void. You have not lived up to God's standards. And the penalty for breaking the covenant is death. And so what you need is a new covenant. And guess what? There's good news. God promised that one day he would establish a new covenant. A different kind of covenant. And in verses 10 through 12 here in chapter 8. He tells them, here are the characteristics of this new covenant. In verse 12, he says, it will be a covenant characterized by the forgiving of your sins, by the mercy of God towards you, forgiving your sins. He says in verse uh, 8 there, he says, it will be characterized not by outward, external, religious observances, but it will be characterized by inner transformation in your heart and in your mind. And it will also be characterized, he says there, by people truly knowing God personally and having a relationship with him you know something incredible happened on the night before Jesus was crucified he was having dinner with his disciples and he took the bread and he, he broke the bread and he said this is my body which is broken for you and then he took the cup of wine and he told them he held up the cup and he said this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood and in doing so Jesus was hearkening back to Jeremiah chapter 31, he's telling them, here's what's going to happen. What happens to me tomorrow, here, here's what it is. When my body is broken, when my blood is shed, that is God finally establishing that new covenant that he promised way back when, that he would one day establish, way back in the time of Jeremiah. The people had failed to keep the old covenant, but now there would be a new covenant brought in by Jesus. And this covenant wouldn't be predicated on our actions. It's predicated on Jesus' actions for us on the cross. And so whereas every religion says, if you live like this, if you do these things, then God will accept you. Christianity says, because of what Jesus did for you, God already accepts you in Christ. Now therefore, go and live like this. 
See, it's really different. It's, it's completely opposite. Do you see how different that is? In the first way, the goal of everything you are doing is to reach the point where God accepts you. That's the end goal. That's what you're working towards. But in Christianity, the message is that in Christ, God already accepts you. In other words, in Christianity, God's acceptance of you isn't the end goal. It's the starting point. And you go out from there and live and, and do the things that you do. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, writers like Peter and Paul, they say things like this. They say, because you have now been made right with God through Jesus, this is how you ought to live. You see, it's the starting point. God's acceptance of you in Christ, it's not something that you have to work for or earn. It's something that has been given to you in Jesus. And if you accept him, it's yours. And that totally changes. Once you have that, it totally changes the way you live from day to day. Because you have been accepted by God in Christ, now we live with incredible confidence. Now we live knowing that he is the source of living water that we crave. We live as people who no longer live for ourselves, but people who are sent out on his mission to bring his good news of his love into this world. And so finally, we'll end with this. How do you take hold of it? How do you take hold of it? How do you take hold of this radical new relationship with God that's offered to you in Jesus? Well, the last verse in the chapter hints at it. Here's what it says. It says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what's becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. What he's saying is this. You will never be able to take hold of this kind of relationship with God by sticking with your old ways. You will never be able to do it by looking to yourself. No, this kind of relationship with God can only be had through faith in Jesus Christ by trusting in and clinging to and depending on who he is and what he did for you in his life and his death and his resurrection. And like the author here says, if there's anything that is holding you back from that, then you need to let it go and leave it behind you. As you bring in the new year today, this is a perfect opportunity for you to consider if there are any of your old ways that you're holding on to, that you're clinging to, which are hurting rather than helping. One of the metaphors that the Bible likes to use is that of running a race. That's how it describes a Christian life, of running a race. So for example, in chapter 12, here's what he says. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and is seated, there it is again, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Three things it tells us, right? Three things. Lay aside the weights, run the race, and look to Jesus. So we'll finish with this quickly. Lay aside the weights. Do you remember when you were in school? Do you ever try to run carrying your backpack full of books? Right, you try to run around after school. It's really hard. It kind of bounces and hits you in the back and really hurts. And so after school, when kids want to run around and chase each other and do whatever they do, what do they do? They drop their book bags right away. It doesn't matter where they are. They're in the middle of an intersection. They drop them in the mud. They'll drop them in the middle of a parking lot. It doesn't matter. They just drop that bag of books wherever they're at, and they run around and chase each other. And that's what it's describing to us here. Whatever it is that's holding you back or slowing you down, drop it. Wherever you're at, you need to drop it. Whether it's a habit or an attitude or something from your past, don't let it hold you back. Paul the Apostle, he put it this way. He had some baggage in his past, and here's what he said in Philippians chapter 3. This one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. New Year is a great time for you to ask yourself, is there anything that's holding me back and weighing me down? Is there anything that I need to drop so that I can run this race that God has set before me? Secondly, run this race. Now I understand that not everybody likes running, but I want you to think about it in this way. Running represents freedom. Do you ever think about that? Running is the truest expression of freedom. See, for a person who has lost mobility, for example, or if you're tied up, imagine if you're tied up. Now you might be able to walk. If you're, if you're shackled, you might be able to walk around. If you're carrying a heavy burden, right, like you're moving somebody's house, you're carrying their furniture, you're carrying a heavy burden, you might be able to walk, but you certainly cannot run. You see, running is an expression of freedom. It means you're not bound by anything. It means you're not weighed down by anything. So when we read that this relationship with God in Jesus is like running a race, I want you to understand that, that that's speaking of freedom. It means you're no longer bound, no longer weighed down by any unhelpful thing or anything that's keeping you bound. You're free to run that race that God has laid out for your life. And he says, finally, looking to Jesus. Now maybe you ask, where am I going to get the endurance? I hate running because I don't have any endurance. Now look at what it says next. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who is seated at the right hand of God. In verse 3 it says this, consider him, consider Jesus, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. In other words, that's where our endurance comes from. So I encourage you today, look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. He is the substance. Everything else, just shadows. He is the fountain of living water. Embrace him. Embrace what he has done for you, taking your place in death so you could have this radical new covenant relationship with God. Forgiveness of sins, inner transformation, and a relationship with him. May you experience that today through faith in Jesus. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this work of transformation that you promised to do in our lives. But thank you, Lord, most of all, that you have come. And as we look to the gospel, it's not a list of what we need to do, but it's the facts of what you have done for us, Jesus. And I pray that today as we consider that, as we dwell upon it, Lord, may we leave this place with those reminders in our minds, Lord, knowing that acceptance, if we are in Christ, acceptance is not the end goal, it is the starting point. May we go out from that point and live our lives knowing that we have been embraced, forgiven, accepted by you. Thank you for that truth. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who would say, you know what, I don't know if I have been accepted by God. I don't know if I have received what Jesus did for me. Lord, if there's anyone here like that today, I pray that even now they would be saying in their heart, but Lord, I do. I do receive that. So if, if that's anyone here today, I want to encourage you. Make that decision today. You can do it and you will be accepted by God in Christ, forgiven of your sins, and he will do a transforming work in your heart. Lord, as we go out from here now, may we go out as people accepted by you, sent out on a mission, and may this next year of our lives be truly blessed. May we run this race with freedom, laying aside everything that holds us back, and may we look to you, Jesus. And we pray that in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.